This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, co-producer of this week's episode. I'll be speaking to Ori Neer with Americans for Peace Now about tensions within the U.S. Jewish community over Israel. But first, news. Hundreds of Jewish settlers rampaged through the town of Awara, close to the city of Nablus in the occupied West Bank, after a Palestinian gunman killed two brothers from a nearby settlement at the entrance to the town. The killing of settlers Yigal and Hillel Yaniv on Sunday, February 22nd, came after an Israeli raid in Nablus four days earlier that killed 11 Palestinians. Settlers descended on the town after dark and threw rocks, fired live ammunition, and set fires to cars and homes. Israeli forces stood by as the attacks went on for hours. The rampage by settlers extended to four villages, according to Israeli rights groups and Palestinian officials, who reported an initial tally of at least 200 homes burned and vandalized. More than 100 people were wounded, and a Palestinian man, Sami Akhtash, age 37, was shot and killed during the pogrom. The father of five had recently returned from Turkey, where he'd volunteered in earthquake relief efforts there. The violence in the West Bank occurred as Israeli and Palestinian Authority officials held a rare summit in Jordan to lower rising tensions and issued a joint statement that they would work to de-escalate the situation on the ground and would maintain the status quo at the holy sites in Jerusalem. The statement committed Israel not to discuss expanding settlements for four months, but Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tweeted hours later there would be no settlement freeze. Former Palestinian Prime Minister and peace negotiator Ahmed Kure, age 85, died February 22nd in the West Bank. In 1968, Kure, also known by his nickname Abu Allah, joined the secular Fatah movement founded by Yasser Arafat and rose quickly through its ranks. In the 1990s, he was the Palestinian lead negotiator in secret talks in Norway between Israelis and Palestinians. Those talks led eventually to the Oslo Accords and the creation of the Palestinian Authority, set up as an interim organization meant to pave the way for a comprehensive peace deal and an independent Palestinian state by 1999. That state has yet to be established and seems as remote as ever. An obituary in the New York Times said his Israeli and American interlocutors remembered Kure as a trustworthy, creative, shrewd, and often humorous negotiator. The U.S. State Department has withdrawn the nomination of James Cavallaro to be commissioner of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights after learning that Cavallaro had said conditions in Israel-Palestine met the definition of apartheid under international human rights law. Cavallaro is a professor of law who established human rights clinics at Harvard and at Stanford universities before founding and becoming director of the University Network for Human Rights at Wesleyan University. In response to the State Department's decision, he pointed out that numerous human rights organizations have concluded that Israel is an apartheid state. My guest today is Ori Nir, a veteran Israeli journalist who spent most of his 24-year career covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. He now serves as Vice President for Public Affairs at Americans for Peace Now, the sister organization of Peace Now. 
in Hebrew, Shalom Ashav, a grassroots Zionist peace movement started in 1978 by Israeli officers and soldiers. In 1981, Americans for Peace Now was founded to mobilize U.S. support for Peace Now's goals. On its website, APM describes itself as the most prominent American Jewish Zionist organization working to achieve a comprehensive political settlement to the Arab-Israeli conflict. Ori Nir, welcome to Understanding Israel-Palestine. Thanks for having me. Ori, the new right-wing government in Israel is creating waves, not only in Israel, but here as well. A number of U.S. Jewish organizations and leaders are speaking out publicly against the new government for what they call an assault on democracy and the rule of law. Americans for Peace now organized a protest in Washington in front of the Israeli embassy February 3rd, supported by the Progressive Israel Network, a coalition of 10 liberal Jewish groups it belongs to. Another protest took place outside the Israeli consulate in New York, February 21st, organized by Trua, one of the other groups in that network. I want to ask you about the significance of this moment for American Jewish support for Israel, but talk to us first about what is going on in Israel that has gotten hundreds of thousands of Israelis marching in the streets and that has mobilized U.S. Jewish organizations and leaders to protest as well. What is happening in Israel is an assault on democracy. That's the way it's perceived there, I think rightly so, by the people who are opposing it. And the people who are opposing it are a very, very large portion of the Israeli public. We see incredible numbers that we haven't seen in, I think, decades out on the streets demonstrating against this government. The the feeling that people there have is that what they and their parents have been working for for so many years This project called Israel, a society that aspirationally at least is democratic and liberal democratic, I think it's important to say liberal democratic, is being pulled away from under their feet. And it's alarming and it's incredibly sad, I have to say, as as an Israeli, Israeli-American who grew up in a home where, where both parents felt deeply invested in in this project, in this enterprise, I am very alarmed and very sad to see what is happening. What it is, is basically a zealous, nationalistic, ultra-Orthodox coalition that is very cohesive in its nature, in its makeup, claiming what it believes is theirs and using, leveraging its power in the Israeli Knesset, in the parliament, to ram through a huge amount of laws that are incredibly consequential and which accumulated effect is one of destroying Israel's democratic institutions. In February, 169 Jewish leaders issued a letter expressing their concern over the Israeli government's plans. Some of these leaders are former executives of of organizations known for their unwavering support for Israel. Tom Dine of APAC, that's the acronym for the powerhouse lobbying organization, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. One of the signatories was a former chair of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. Those are former executives, not current ones. So far, those two organizations and others, such as the American Jewish Committee and the Anti-Defamation League, are not speaking out against the new Israeli government. How seriously should we take this letter and the protests? 
is there a real fracturing of support in the American Jewish community, or does this simply expose tensions that have existed for years? It's both. It does expose tensions that have existed for years, particularly on the more progressive side of American Jewish politics. The ultra-Orthodox establishment in Israel is taking over a great portion of the uh, Israeli public sphere that American Jews care about, which is religious pluralism. Most American Jews are not Orthodox. All Israeli Jews, even the secular ones, are Orthodox in the sense that they have to practice, that they have to follow the monopoly that Orthodox Jews in Israel have over the way in which religion plays out in public life. For for many years, uh, American Jews were very concerned about this, but they felt, rightly so, that there were enough checks and balances to prevent the Orthodox establishment from completely taking over and pushing them aside from the public sphere. Now, uh, again, because it has power, because there are very few checks and balances and those that still exist are uh, under threat of being completely obliterated by this coalition, uh, many American Jews feel uh, threatened, rightly so, and they are expressing their concern, a, an increasingly louder voice. Do you think this is simply a temporary blip, or do you think it indicates something that that is going to be with us for a while? I think it does indicate something that's going to be uh, with us for a while, and and that's on two counts. The first is the nature of this coalition. It's a it's a solid coalition, although its majority in the Knesset is only sixty five out of one hundred and sixty four. I'm sorry, out of one hundred and twenty. Uh, in Israeli terms, uh, that's considered a very solid majority, and particularly when all the members of this coalition, all the parties, are very much committed to the bloc. It's called the bloc. The bloc is a pro-Netanyahu bloc. The bloc is really concentrated around a figure, uh, and that is Prime Minister Netanyahu. So that's one reason why I think it's it's a solid and potentially has a long shelf life. And the other is a longer term trend that is taking place in Israel, and that is the fact that the ultra-Orthodox and modern Orthodox in Israel, that sector is growing in a much higher rate than the overall uh, society in Israel. They they have more children. And so it is now becoming clearer and clearer, I think, as with every round of elections. And there have been many rounds of elections in the past three or four, three and a half years, five rounds. Their power increases each time. And it increases because, A, they have the numbers, and B, they vote, and they vote as a block, and that is a demographic trend that I cannot see how it would reverse. So I think that that's definitely going to be with us for a long time. Peace now is known for its comprehensive monitoring of Jewish settlements in the occupied territory since 1967, was when Israel gained control of the West Bank and Gaza. The settlements have grown steadily in size and number under all Israeli governments, regardless of political party. They accelerated when Donald Trump was president. They've not slowed much, if any, since President Biden took office. What's expected to happen now as regards settlements in the West Bank and the treatment of Palestinians living there? With your permission, I'd like to put this in a broader context and explain the the, the, the linkage 
between this frenzy of legislation coming from this government and the issue of the, of the occupation, which, of course, the settlements are a major part of. I'd like to start with a, with just a little anecdote, a little story. When when I just started covering the West Bank for Haaretz, that was many years ago, back in the in the late 80s. And I, I used to, to meet with numerous Palestinians. I spent more time in my working days in the West Bank than I did in West Jerusalem, where I lived. Many, many of those I spoke with in the West Bank, Palestinians, would, would tell me how impressed they were, how astonished about Israeli democracy, about how vibrant Israeli democracy was. And then, you know, everything was still open. They could easily cross the Green Line into Israel. When they crossed back from Israel to the West Bank, that notion that you can live five minutes from Israel inside the West Bank and be under a regime that is so oppressive and so on. And I, I used to think about it quite a lot when I crossed, you know, back and forth. And and all I could think about was that hopefully one day Palestinians would be able to sort of import the or emulate, let's say, the spirit and the practice of Israeli democratic institutions into their own independent state once it is established. We all know what happened since. <laughs> Israeli democracy is not has not been import, imported into the West Bank, neither under Israeli rule nor under the rule of the Palestinian Authority. Instead, what is happening is the importation and the seeping in of the occupation and its autocratic and anti-democratic nature into Israel. As I see it, what is happening today in Israel is closely associated with the occupation and with the forces who want to perpetuate the occupation. First and foremost, this is an effort by the nationalistic extreme right to anchor in legislation measures that would not allow ending the occupation, measures that would not allow changing the apartheid-like regime in the West Bank, that would not accommodate demands for Palestinian rights, and will not allow for paving the path toward a Palestinian state, and would actually open the path toward annexation. Settlements are a major tool in advancing annexation. And so what I think is going to happen, and we already see it in action, is that both in terms of legislation and in terms of administrative measures that are being taken by the government, there will be a a major effort to speed up settlement activity, to further equate the status of uh, Israeli citizens who live in Israel proper to those who live in the West Bank, to settlers, and that's that's actual annexation to speed up that process of annexation in order to make it even more difficult for a next government, if there is going to be one that is not as right-wing, to reverse the course. I think that that really is what is in the core of this legislative frenzy. They feel that they have a window of opportunity, perhaps not much time. They have a prime minister who is dependent on them, who's weak. They have a splintered opposition. And they have a U.S. administration that wants quiet in the Middle East and and has other global priorities. And they say, we have to seize the moment, carpe diem, do it now and strengthen both the occupation, the settlements and and advance uh, annexation. If you're just tuning in, this is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, and I'm speaking to Ori Nir, a veteran Israeli journalist 
now Vice President for Public Affairs at Americans for Peace Now, a liberal Zionist peace group backing the formation of an independent Palestinian state coexisting with Israel. It doesn't seem like either liberal Zionist organizations such as Americans for Peace Now or anti-Zionist organizations such as, say, Jewish Voice for Peace have nearly the traction with American politicians that groups like APAC or the ADL or the American Jewish Committee have. Why is that? Is it that these groups are simply better funded? It seems like these other organizations have a stranglehold on the debate here, or is that an overstatement? I think it's a bit of an overstatement only because there's been a major change in recent years. I think that the situation you're you're describing is still pretty much the case. It used to be very much the case. Things have changed and things have changed mainly because of the attitude of of progressive American Jews and particularly young progressive American Jews toward Israeli-Palestinian dynamics. There is a change there. We, We see it all the time on the Hill. We have staffers on the Hill. Who, who follow it. Uh, I'm very much in, in close contact with J Street, which has a, an even more robust presence on the Hill. Things are changing in what I see as a very positive trend. Since the new year began, your CEO, Haydar Suskin, said that the American Jewish community and American political leaders need to recognize and acknowledge this is a different day and it can't be the same old responses. What did yeah. he mean by that? What is Americans for Peace now calling for? What we're calling for is a, a very far-reaching step, which is conditioning aid to Israel, conditioning military aid. Now, we do recognize that Israel has legitimate security concerns, and, and we do appreciate the U.S. Uh, assistance for Israel to maintain those interests uh, with U.S. aid, and we think it's important. However, we also recognize that there is a growing gulf broadening all the time between the values that the U.S., we hope, stands for and that we know we stand for and that we know most American Jews stand for, values such as equality, freedom, and human rights, and justice for the Palestinians between those and the policies of the state of Israel. If the policies of the government of Israel now are such that would make the occupation permanent, a very strong tool that the United States has in order to address that is the aid that it gives to Israel. As long as reducing that aid does not impede Israel's legitimate concerns in terms of security, when that aid is used for things like the demolishing of Palestinian homes, settlements, building roads for settlements and things like that, we think that those should be used as conditions for the U.S. aid. I don't know if you read Peter Beinart's opinion piece in the New York Times. It's called You Can't Save Democracy in a Jewish State. And it highlights the contradiction of a country that has described itself as being both a Jewish state with a Jewish majority population and a democratic state. Beinart points out that Israel is effectively ruling a country with a majority Palestinian population because the boundaries between what used to be Israel's de facto border, the Green Line, and the West Bank have been erased. And the Palestinian people have no say about how they are being ruled and are living in subjugation. Doesn't this state of affairs simply highlight some of the internal contradictions that exist in being a liberal Zionist? I see what you're getting at. And and more and more of what we stand for is aspirational rather than plays out on the ground. And I, I fully acknowledge that. That is correct. 
However, the fact that it's aspirational does not mean that I have to accept it. In other words, I don't have to accept the one-state situation that is increasingly being created between Israelis and Palestinians because I think and, th- and here I'm, I'm speaking for myself, APN doesn't really have a policy per se on that. But my own personal opinion is that it would be an absolute disaster for the state of Israel, for the Zionist project, which I believe in, of a nation state for the Jewish people, if we Israelis allow there to become a binational state in Palestine. What I, in historic Palestine, I should say, what I think still should be the, the the case, and I I do think it is still possible, very difficult, but still possible, is a separation, a political separation between Israelis and Palestinians into two national entities, two states, Israel and Palestine living side by side in peace and security through negotiations with international mediation. If you're looking for a solution, that's the only solution. If you're looking for a state of perpetual Enmity, war, and chaos, the binational state is, unfortunately, is the way to go. And is that because you think there's just such enmity between the two populations that they cannot live together? For now, yes. I think that that really is the case. I've been following Israeli-Palestinian dynamics for so many years. The vengeance that has been building on both sides toward each other is such today that you cannot bring people together and live in peace before you separate them into two states. Once those two states are created, all sorts of creative solutions can be applied, including confederation and all sorts of things like that. But the first step must be a political separation. I'm wondering if you talk a little about your own life and your experiences as a journalist in Israel. You covered the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for 24 years. You covered the first intifada, the uprising in the late 1980s when Palestinians began a series of protest and civil disobedience campaigns against the Israeli military occupation. You covered the Oslo peace process. If you could talk about how your perception of the conflict changed over those years, how did your experience affect you? Wow, I can I can write more than a book about this, and I hope I'll have the ability to do it someday. But I'll say a few things. One is that I'm heartbroken. I'm really heartbroken. I've been heartbroken for a long time because I really did believe, I still believe today that there were moments, there was at least one moment that I experienced, I lived through, I saw, and I documented where Israelis and Palestinians were close to a settlement and could have achieved it and because of various reasons that I won't go into now did not follow through and it was not achieved more than once I think that there have been at least two such moments that I have lived through I've seen moments in which there was uh, preparedness on both sides to let bygones be bygones I'm being careful with this because I don't want to be to to sound too Pollyannish, but the Palestinians that I knew and that I uh, befriended in the West Bank, perhaps not the ones living in in refugee camps in Lebanon and 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 Jordan, but but the ones I knew, I think really were prepared, were were ready, were ripe at, at a certain moment for historical compromise. I'm really heartbroken 
at the fact that the chances we, and this is a very broad we, Israelis and Palestinians, had to reach reconciliation. And I'm, I'm using a big word here. Reconciliation is a big word, but I think it we were close to it. I am also incredibly disheartened by the fact that what I see increasingly Palestinians today wishing for and fighting for is no, no longer a Palestinian statehood, but something else that they often can't even quite describe or depict. It's something else. What I'm trying to say is that I'm witnessing the despair on the Palestinian side. You see it in, you see it in so many ways including public opinion polls and so on. And then I see on the Israeli side, and both sides, but you know, as an Israeli, it concerns me very much, uh, the radicalization, the total misunderstanding and the inability to empathize with the other side. And that hurts me very, very much. It's a cognitive dissonance and an emotional dissonance. You look at what is happening. Uh, you know that it could be different. You know that there are paths to get closer and maybe actually achieve peace. But at the moment, and probably in the foreseeable future, doesn't seem to be possible. And it's very painful. You've mentioned the effects of trauma on both Israeli and Palestinian society. Could you talk about that? Most Israelis, I think, believe that they are the victims of a uh, ruthless Palestinian zealous movement that is out to get them and to shove them into the sea and to obliterate them. I don't think that that, that conviction is correct, but that's what most Israelis believe. And I think that one of the reasons why they believe it so easily is the still very much living legacy of the Holocaust in Israeli public life, both because of the way in which Israel tries to commemorate it and to keep it alive, but also because of the depth of the trauma that the Holocaust created among Israeli Jews. That is something that current violence is measured against. I know that some people tend to dismiss it. You can't dismiss it. It's there. We are too post-traumatic or not maybe post. We're still two societies that are in trauma, that are in an ongoing trauma. And it's, without comparing the Holocaust to the Nakba, it really is interesting how current traumatic experiences that the Israeli population is going through, the Israeli Jews are going through, are measured against the Holocaust. And current traumatic experiences that Palestinians go through, violence, are measured against the Nakba. Many Palestinians will tell you today there's, that the Nakba is still going on, that the Nakba still lives, not only in their heads, not only in their minds, but in actual reality. And Aren't they we, referring to the confiscation of their land, though? Yes, really it's, it's beyond that. I think that they're referring to the dynamics of their ongoing conflict with Israel, which, yes, confiscation of land and, and, and kicking them out of their homes in East Jerusalem and so on is something that very much is happening. And the hope, the vision of some of the really, you know, most extreme uh, Israeli Jews of kicking them out of the land of of the land of Palestine is also something that is there and is a legitimate concern. When you have two societies that are still in trauma, in an ongoing trauma, and when when circumstances are such that that they keep keep this traumatic trend 
boiling all the time, it, it is very, very difficult to see a horizon of, of hope. Ori Nir, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. That was Ori Nir, a longtime Israeli journalist who is now Vice President of Public Affairs for Americans for Peace Now. You've been listening to Understanding Israel-Palestine. The views expressed in the program are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect those of the station or anyone associated with it. If you'd like to hear the full interview, you can listen to our podcast or go to our program page on the KKFI website at kkfi.org and listen online. Join us again next week for another episode of Understanding Israel-Palestine.